0: Section sixty five of Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hawaii in April two thousand twenty. The World's Story, Volume eleven canada south america central america mexico and the west indies edited by eva march tappan section 65 the unconquerable araucanians 20th century by nevin o winter the most indomitable of the native races in the new world with the exception of the red men of north america have been the araucanians of chile They are the proudest, richest and bravest of the Indians of South America. At the time of the conquest, this race occupied the greater part of Chile and had spread across the Andes into a part of Patagonia, which country they shared with the Tehuelches, the so-called Giants. For 300 years they waged a successful warfare against the Spanish invaders and the Republic of Chile, which later succeeded the Spanish province. It was not until 1884 that they were finally conquered, and submitted to the Chilean government after certain rights and privileges were guaranteed to them. So long as the Chileans attempted to conquer the Indians by brute force, they failed, just as had the Spaniards before them. It was not until some tact and judgment were used that any real progress was made in the subjugation of these people. According to the early account, the Araucanians were given to agriculture, and the valleys south of the present city of Santiago teemed with an industrious and energetic race. The Incas had spread their sovereignty south of Santiago as far as the Maule River, and this probably accounted in part for the agricultural development there. Some writers claim that the Incas had enslaved the Araucanians and compelled them to do their work. At any rate, the Spaniards encountered little opposition in their conquest before that river was reached. The fact is that these people were really divided into three different tribes. The tribes that lived along the coast were fishermen, those that lived on the higher lands were hunters, while those who occupied the more fertile valleys were agriculturalists. It was estimated by some of the early writers that there were at that time no less than a half million of these Indians. This estimate is no doubt excessive, and half that number would be nearer the truth. They knew not the use of any metals, excepting silver, which they worked into various forms. Silver breastplates were worn by the wives of the caciques, or chiefs, which told of the number of their children, as large families were their boast. They also wore large crescent earrings and great silver suns as breast-pins, with hieroglyphics upon them which told of a nature-worship. Bracelets formed of a multiplicity of minute silver beads were also fashioned very attractively, and in later years silver stirrups were manufactured for the headmen. Even today this race is noted for its silver work. Down upon this stronghold of the Araucanians came Pedro de Valdivia in 1550, with two hundred horsemen and some other troops. This force no doubt made an imposing appearance as it marched along with their coats of mail, helmets, swords and spears flashing in the sunlight. The only firearms were clumsy arquebuses borne by the infantry, and fired from a wooden support by the aid of a fuse kept alight only with great difficulty. And yet, the Spanish soldiers at that time were considered to be the best in the world. They continually marched in order of battle, preceded by an advanced guard, and carrying their baggage in the center. From the time Valdivia reached the river Itata, His march was a continuous conflict, although he managed to get as far as the river Biobío. How 200 men were able to make this trip through a thickly populated country can be explained by reason of the superior weapons and armour of the Spaniards, as well as the fact that they used horses. These animals at that time were unknown among the native races and inspired them with terror, just as they did the Aztecs in Mexico. The Indians had only wooden lances, arrows of the simplest manufacture, and clubs, and yet they managed to stand against the Spaniards at times, until hundreds of them were slain. On one occasion the Spanish records say that Valdivia was beset with 20,000 Indians. As fast as one body of the Indians was routed, another took their place. Compact masses of the Indians at times surrounded the Spaniards – The horses were clubbed, and this together with the war-cries of the attacking force created a terrible confusion. When the Indians were finally beaten off, the ground was literally covered with the dead bodies of their comrades. Every Spaniard was wounded. This battle is known as that of Adalien. The cruelty of the Spaniards in this invasion was something terrible at times. After the Battle of Penco, where, according to the chroniclers, 40,000 Indians attacked the invaders, Valdivia cut off the nose and right hand of 200 prisoners and sent them back to terrorize their comrades in this mutilated condition. They treated the natives with absolute contempt and endeavored to reduce them to abject slavery. Valdivia practically had no choice in the matter, each soldier had to be paid a grant of land, with a certain number of slaves. The soldiers were of a fierce and intractable character, and it was almost impossible to maintain any sort of discipline among them. Valdivia founded the city of Imperial, fortified it, and employed the natives in washing the gold found in this district. He also established the city of Rica, which means the rich village and was so named because of the wealth and fertility of that valley, and another town that was named after himself. In fact, he endeavored to establish a string of fortified outposts throughout that entire section of the country. The Indians were parceled out among the conquerors, Valdivia retaining for himself about 40,000. Although at this time the Spanish population of the valley did not exceed 1,000, yet they were able after a while to force the Indians to do their work. The men were attended by a numerous retinue of servants wherever they went, and even the women wanted to be followed by a large concourse of slaves when they attended church. Rank and importance seemed to be indicated by the number of menials. The end, however, was not long in coming. It was due to an Indian boy, named Lautaro, who had been raised in the household of Valdivia himself, that their freedom was finally obtained. He had learned to manage horses and to use the Spaniards' weapons. Taking some of these animals, he joined his people and stirred up a general insurrection. A public assembly of the tribes was called, and Lautaro presented a definite plan for a campaign against the enemy. When Valdivia arrived on the scene to put this revolt down, he found some of the towns already in ashes. Lautaro, although only twenty-one years of age, had shown a genius for war and was in command, and had already established some discipline among his troops. Not a single Spaniard escaped in a battle, or series of skirmishes, that was fought, although thousands of the Indians fell. Contrary to the example set by the Spaniards, Lautaro simply killed his prisoners by beheading them without any preliminary torture. Valdivia himself was captured by the Indians. That general at once offered 200 sheep for his release and promised to withdraw all of his troops from their territory. The Indian caciques, however, would not consent to this and, at a prearranged signal, one of the Indian soldiers struck him on the head with a club and killed him. It is said that his body was afterwards eaten by the assembled caciques in order to give them heart in the struggle against the Spaniards. This seems to have been a custom among many primitive races. Thus was a struggle begun which lasted for three centuries. End of section 65